man, I'm I'm pumped for today. Um, today's a real special day for me personally. I think for our podcast too, we got a really cool guest. Uh, we've had some guests before, friends, college roommates, but uh, our guest today, his name is Dan Owalabi, um, speaker, orator, author, leadership coach. Awesome, awesome pant wearer. Look at these chinos he's got on. Um, and, you know, my story with Dan is sadly 25 years old now. Yeah, how about that? So I moved. I'll give you a little background here. I moved from Akron to Wayne County uh, in fourth grade, 10 years old. And uh, so I moved to uh, Smithville and small county school and so I moved from a pretty diverse school district to a county school district, uh, both economically and I think culturally. And uh, my first day at school, we went to lunch. And I, was, I vividly remember being in the lunch line and about 30 foot behind me, this voice telling people to hurry up came. And I was like, That's not, that doesn't sound like anybody else in my class. I turned around. And Dan, can't miss him, school, uh, a lot of white kids, all white kids. Dan happened to be uh, uh, physically mature, we'll call it, taller than everybody, <laughs> about six, seven inches. And he was letting everybody know it was lunchtime for him, too, and he'd get out of his way. <laughs> and uh, so Dan and I kind of threw a lot of things, through sports. I think uh, another way we connected was through getting in trouble at school. We both had uh, – booming voices and also loud opinions on pretty much everything from how we should be taught or when recess should end. So our mouths both got us not in big trouble, but we, we've been kicked out of our fair share of classes for just, uh, you know, letting ourselves run on a little bit. So we've been, I've been a kindred spirit with him for, for many years. And even though he, his parents made a terrible decision to move school districts, and he became my rival in sports. And <laughs> uh, But I was able to watch Dan through a lot of his life, through college sports, through ministry. And we're going to touch on a lot of stuff. But, uh, you know, Dan, you've always had a special place in my heart. I'm really, really excited to, to have you here because we got some cool stuff to go over. But, um, yeah, that, it's, you know, I just – Wanted to have this podcast with two of my friends. You know, Cedric and I have been really close. Dan and I have just known each other forever. So many through lines, both culturally, but, you know, Dan has had such a meteoric rise through his career and now becoming an author. You know, I'm really happy that we get to talk about your book today. So, Dan, say hi to everybody. Uh, it's good to be here. Now, I'll tell you what, before we get started, um, Matt, I got to thank you. Uh, I remember where it was, um, and if you don't know Matt, you know Matt is an unbelievably generous guy. Uh, we were in sixth grade. We were playing outside, and I had just grown that summer. I had just grown like five inches, right? You know, and so we were playing outside, and suddenly Matt starts passing me the ball, like generously passing me the ball, and I start scoring. And this is just one game, you know, and things are going really good. Best game I'd ever had in my life on, in, on the playground in recess. After the game, Matt comes up to me. He says, hey, man, would you ever be interested in playing for a traveling team? The traveling team was uh, 
Gold Rush? Worcester Gold Rush, yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And you talk about a spark of confidence. That was being on that select team. I think I was the worst player on the team. But just being on the team was a huge confidence booster. And then, um, you know, when I ended up playing in high school then playing in college, I always look back to that moment thinking, okay, you know what, if Matt hadn't said, hey, man, I think you'd be good enough to play for this team, I would have never personally had the confidence to do that. So, man, I appreciate you seeing something before anybody else saw something. <laughs> it means a lot to me. Well, you know, I always felt like whenever I saw you, like, drop-step and dunk on somebody, that was me <laughs> drop-stepping. A little piece of me was on your shoulder putting it down. You know, I was not – you know, I stopped growing around the time he started growing. And, uh, you know, sports has always been a language – for me through the years, either coaching or playing or just supporting and, you know, that, that created a relationship with us. I got to know Dan's family. My parents got to know Dan and. Then you, you used know, to pick rode, me up from games. Yeah. We used to ride in the back of my parents' minivan and, you know, get ourselves in trouble for <sighs> talking too much or too loud. And, and then they'd always stop at McDonald's. Like yeah. we got, I got so much free food just hanging out with your family. It was <laughs> so good. <laughs> that hasn't changed, by the way. The yeah. sh- the you know my parents. They like, still do that. But it was, it was something that you know, for us, you know, knowing that when we when we asked you and you wanted to do it, and like, I mean, honestly, from you having very limited practice coaching to and then like a, a travel type of scenario where it's, you know, a lot more intense and the growth you had. I mean, so, you know, when we first started, Dan, sometimes we'd be like, no, we're this way. You're not that. You're running <laughs> the wrong direction. <laughs> to then by his senior year, he's leading the county in probably every stat, getting college scholarships. And part of me was a little mad because he moved to our rival, like I said, and I kind of like created a, this monster. I should have just – I should have handed you a book instead of a basketball <laughs> – because then I wouldn't have had to get whooped by you every game in basketball in high school. But, you know, it was it was cool to have, you know, even though we, we went different paths, you know, really in middle school, I know for me I always kept an eye on what you were doing and, and, and seeing what was going on. So, yeah, and know, I think history like, is great. So mm-hmm. when um, – I, I don't remember exactly when it was. I, th- I think it was soon after moving here and getting into ministry here. Uh, and Matt, at this time, Matt and I had already been friends for a while, but he had mentioned to me, he was like, hey, you know what, my friend Dan, I'd like to introduce you to him, and kind of gave me an insight into what it was you were doing at the time and pastoring. Um, and before I even had a chance to actually formally meet you, I actually heard you kind of speak. Um, it was when um, your church at the time, they did a launch. Um, you guys had a campus here. And, oh, you were there. Yeah, and I, I came to that service. Oh, I was like, yeah. you know what, there's a new church in town, I want to show my support, and, and I came and um, and you did a really good job of, like, you know, explaining exactly what it was the mission of the church was and why you guys came to Worcester. And um, and that was kind of, like, my first um, introduction to you. And I think there was another – there was a thing on a Sunday night that you guys were having where you were speaking. And I said, I really want to go to this. And I, and I, and I came to that, and, yeah. and, I heard you, and I heard you speak. And so it was – that was kind of, like, my, my – almost my own introduction to, to that. And, you know, I think – Obviously, you know, we're both black. We're both black pastors in a very white place. Right. And I think some people, I think some people's expectation was, well, he's the other black guy, so you have to get to know him. And honestly, that wasn't my, <laughs> that wasn't my approach. It was more like, hey, there's another young pastor in a town that's not that young when it comes to pastoring. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, it might be good to just kind of like 
see see how he is doing what right. he is doing. So that was more of a motivator to me mm-hmm. as opposed to like, oh yeah, we're, we're both black, so let's just hang out. Like, yeah, because why not? You know. Yeah, <laughs> yes, you know. So and then obviously, you know, just well, mostly through Matt, like I I had heard about what you were doing in ministry and the decision to start your own um, your own work, basically we'll call it that. And so following it through Matt giving me tidbits and so I'm really excited to hear about hear about how you made the decision, why you made the decision. Yeah, yeah. Um, Matt is almost done with the book. Uh, I have not started it yet, but I'm 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 excited to start it. Mm. So let's start there. Let's start with um, why, how did you feel a call to ministry? How did that go about? And then um, how long did that last? And then when did the when did the, the call to kind of switch gears a little bit? When did that happen? And obviously Matt is going to pull some things from not just from your relationship with each other, but also from reading the book and talking to you through, Absolutely. you know, about about why you made that decision. So, yeah, yeah, great question, said so, said Cedric. Either way, okay, yeah. <laughs> I'm good with either. <laughs> great, yeah, great question. Um, so, how did I how did I feel the call to ministry? Uh, so, my my dad was a pastor, and um, I think from an early age, I think I knew that every Christian is called to ministry, whether you get paid or not. And so, I felt like. Um, you know, I was, I was called to work with people, to help people do whatever I could to point them to Jesus from a pretty young age. Um, in college, I tell you what, I, I did not want to be in full-time ministry at Touché. all. Touche. Yeah, like so, I didn't need to be paid to real, be a professional Christian. <laughs> real, real quick, I too, my dad's also a pastor. Oh, no way, what? Uh, yep. Are you my brother? Yeah, man. Come on, man. My dad's a pastor, <laughs> you know, like. What's your sister's uh, name, is it? Do you have a sister? I do. I have two sisters. What's her name? One's Brittany and one's Alex. Oh, <laughs> nuts. Uh, that'd be too crazy. All right, all right. So my dad also was a pastor. And similar thing, like real quick, like I feel, felt the same thing. Like I knew, I here's the thing. As a kid, I specifically remember wanting to be a deacon. Mm. And here's why. I was like, you know what? Deacons don't get paid, so that means they don't have to tell them all this extra stuff. Right. I could still serve. I could teach a Sunday school class. I, don't have I to. could be on a deacon board. Seriously, I remember being like eight, nine, ten. I was like, you know what? I think I'm gonna be a deacon. And then <laughs> like said, no kid ever, the, right? The, that's, that's crazy. Know, right? Yeah. And then so and sitting in college, I was like, nah, I'm good. I don't really want to do anything right. ministry related. Right. That place is wild. I'm not. I'm not down with all that. So it's interesting that you mentioned that. But anyway, keep going. Yeah. Same thing for me. You know, I've been. I, I was around the church my whole life, and I, you just you see the the. The seedy underbelly, you know. Absolutely. I mean, the church should be full of sinful people, and it is. And you see all the sin come out, you know, when you're a pastor's kid. So I didn't want any of that. Um, became a high school history teacher for a while. Um, long story short, I took a mission trip to Haiti, and I was up on a roof. Um, and God spoke to me in a way that he had never spoke to me before and said, hey, look, um, I really want you in ministry in, in you know, so many words. Um and the biggest hang-up that I had wasn't so much ministry itself. It was the area that I was living in. My wife and I got married, and we moved to Holmes County, Ohio. And if you're not familiar with that, I mean, that, that is you, – you can't – you can drive miles and miles and miles, and you'll never find a black person. I mean, never. it is Amish country. It is, is very, very conservative. And some amazing people there. But, you know, in order to, to be a pastor in Holmes County um, – you know, you have to have, as a black person, you have to have a certain level of compassion and a certain level of tough skin because people will say things not out of malice, 
but out of just plain ignorance. They Absolutely. just don't know. And you hear that every every time you turn around. Somebody will ask you, like, hey, man, so you related to LeBron? Yeah. Like, no, oh, no, call, I'm not. Like, I don't know call, who he is. Call, you know? Unintentional moments and races. Yeah, we actually have that. Oh, like, you, have, have, you have a phrase for it. We, we actually oh. have that on our podcast. <laughs> unintentional. So it, hap- it happened to me this morning. What? This morning, I go into the coffee shop, and I said, can I have an Americano? The the barista helped me, and this lady, I don't call her lady, but she was a younger younger girl. She's sitting at a table, and I turn around, I grab my coffee, I say thank you, and then she's like, I really like your shoes, and I said, oh, thank you. And she said, man, I wish I was one of those people that could pull off the sneaker look. Oh, like, what do you mean It looks so good on, <laughs> it, she, she, said, she said, it looks so good on you. I guess I'll just have to stick with Vans. I really wish I was one of those people that could pull off the sneaker look. And you I was should like, have been like, what do you mean by like, one of those people? So like, what you're trying to say is you – you feel like because you white now black, you can't pull yeah. up a pair of jays. Wow. <laughs> wow. Do people randomly come up to you and be like, can you still dunk? Just assuming that you play time. basketball. All the time. All the time. <laughs> I, was, I mean, I feel bad for the black person that can't play basketball yeah. because then, oh, really? That's me. <laughs> you can't. Because <laughs> yep. you always get that question. Always get that know? question. And I play golf and tennis. So uh, wow. it's even, so it's like the two whitest sports. <laughs> and so people are like, we're like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm a really good golfer. And they're like, really? And so, so then there's another level of uncomfortableness because it's like, I was already uncomfortable because. You were black, and then I was, and re- made myself more uncomfortable because I asked this question right. and I saw the look on your face. And then you also play a sport that I can't play, and that's that's <laughs> and I have go, no context that's to. Right, that's yeah, right. You go, Tiger Woods, right? Yeah. 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 Tiger, yeah. right? So, anyway. Okay, we're cool. Yeah. Like I know somebody. So anyway, yeah. keep going. Yeah, we're, so Holmes County. No, no, no. <laughs> that's good. Well, that's the thing. I mean, ultimately, God, God showed me that um, it was super important that my posture was towards serving people. And you know, if your if your attitude is to serve people, then you can take all kinds of abuse and slights and things like that knowing that um, your job isn't necessary to get your sense of fulfillment and identity from other people, but to serve them. And so um, that's what God did. And, and, and in the course of the time while I was there, I mean, that really hardened me um, away from my own preferences, you know, mm-hmm. and trying to make people think a certain thing about me. I was just there to serve. So great experience, three years there. Um, and then, you know, overall, um, I was a pastor for, a paid pastor for about 10 years, um, after uh, pastoring at the church in Holmes County, I got the opportunity to plant a church in my hometown, which was like an opportunity that I could not refuse. And I remember praying for people um, that I went to high school with, um, saying, man, if there could be a church that, uh, that would get people excited about coming to church who are super far from God, you know, I'd love to be a part of that. And so um, opportunity came, said, hey, um, New Point Community Church was the church I was a part of at the time. Um, they said, hey, we're planning a church in Worcester. Um, would you be interested in being a part of that? Um, I said, yep, I'm in. And so long story short, that's how we came to Worcester, and that's how I ended up being a pastor here. Nice. So you were pastoring a total of 10 years or at New Point for 10 years? New Point was um, for uh, around six years, and then Walnut Creek was for about four years. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So when did the transition from pastoring in a traditional sense because you're still pastoring mm-hmm, now mm-hmm. but so when did the when did it shift from pastoring in a traditional sense to what it is you're doing now so explain what it is you're doing now and then kind of like how how, how did you get to that place yeah great question so um while i was pastoring i also realized that i had a passion for leadership um i love talking about leadership i love working with leaders they have a unique responsibility in society and they have unique pressures that people often don't understand and so i really enjoyed working with them and so um, i had given a talk um on leadership and it happened to be a really big crowd and happened to go really really well 
And after that talk, um, I started getting calls to come into businesses and speak on that same topic of servant leadership and stuff. And so then in order to kind of handle it all, um, I paired up with someone and we started a company. And we said, hey, let's, let's, let's kind of package this. Let's make this as helpful as possible. And so um, that really got up and running and took off. And I was doing that while I was also pastoring the church at the same time. And I love having multiple balls in the air. And so it was fun to kind of juggle that. Um, and so then, you know, there came a day when I realized that I was ready for a new challenge at the church. I had done pretty much everything I could do. It was in a great shape. We had great staff, um, volunteers in place. There were days I didn't have to go in at all because things were just running on their own. And so that was the day that I knew, okay, I think it's, start, it's time to start praying to God about what I can do next to stretch and grow myself. Um, so then, uh, you know, that's where I jumped into, um, the international nonprofit. So nice. And it's funny because, you know, when we talk, I mean, leadership, leadership training, leadership guidance, I mean, uh, Cedric and I are both, uh, fanboys of anything in that genre. Anything in that genre. Love the, uh, you know, all the books and stuff. Who's your favorite leadership author? It's tough for me because I go through different phases. Like, different books mean different things to me through different trials I was in. Like, you know, for me, uh, I've fallen a little out of love with some of the stuff. But like Gary Vee, uh, yeah, Gary was Vee. big for me. Yeah. He would be big in for my you. late twenties yeah. when he was doing that. Was like it was like jab, 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 yeah. left hook or whatever. Yeah, jab, 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 hook. Yeah, yeah. because that was. For me at that time, you know, working for my dad and our company and every year kind of getting a little bit more chunk of responsibility and having more autonomy to make decisions and, and having more control of the ship. And that was something that kind of emboldened me to say, you know what, I don't, I can make changes. I can do things different. I can kind of disrupt what it is to be in my position to run a mortgage company to work with the people we work with and so that was kind of a book for me that really emboldened me to just be like be aggressive like don't be like just come to work and this is how it works and just wait for the phone to ring or like how do you go out how do you leverage your relationships and so that was a really big thing for me um that was a long time ago uh really recently uh donald miller with uh, building your story brand yeah so like that was always the funny thing I've and I've sent that book to probably twenty people. Mm. Yeah, I think um, you you read it and then I read it right afterwards and we talked about it for yeah, quite a bit. I've I've uh, different friends all over the country that I've mailed the book to and that really was another thing that was like, you know, understanding codifying how people think and how when I run my business the way I want it to be seen, I'm being selfish. I'm not really running my business the way that people can connect to it. So. That was really important to me. So those are, I would say, the two people. I'm, I'm really big into disruptions. Like, I, I feel like if I get in a well-worn path, I just, I get frustrated. Mm. I get just, I have to always be tearing something down and putting something together or just reworking some areas. So those books were really great for me and authors are really great for me because they really looked at it like the way you're thinking of it is probably wrong. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. But let's... Let's systematically put something new together. So yeah, I don't know if I have a I don't know if I have a favorite author, but the one that changed it for me was "Now Discover Your Strengths" by Marcus Buckingham. Oh yeah, sure. Um, yeah. And 
He's a great speaker. Have you heard him speak? I have not heard him speak. So good. One of the best authentic speakers I've ever heard. Mm, I've never heard him speak. Yeah. But I read that book and that kind of, that really, really changed things for me. Um, and actually at the time, it kind of helped me shift. Well, actually since at the time, probably two or three years after I read that, it helped me shift gears from wanting to just do counseling related things mm -hmm. to doing life coaching things. So I kind of, I changed my major. I got my master's in, um, in, in counseling, but I kind of, I, I did the life coaching track. And so that's one of the things that, that, that book along with some others. Um, and then there's some, there's some authors, some, they're pastors and they're not like overtly leadership books, but they speak to, they speak to my leadership heart. And one of the authors right now for me is John Mark Comer. Um, none of his books are actually leadership yeah, books, yeah. but he just really speaks to the heart of the pastor, the the pastor leader. Mm. So, so those are the that you know that's those books. I, I mean, I'm I'm reading another one right now by him. Um, so those are the two that just off the top of my head. But that's great. But yeah, yeah. I, but I'll look, I've never heard him speak. I'll I'll check it out. So it's kind of organically. It seems like you have went from you know traditional pastoring, and then this kind of organically became a. Uh, an opportunity that grew, grew, grew into a business and now is, you know, a profession. And, you know, what was it like? I want to know, like, conversations with your wife. And I apologize. What's her name? Erica. Erica. Yeah. So what was that like going to Erica? Was she, when you were like, hey, you know this paycheck I've been getting? That's really, <laughs> uh, really consistent. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to just see who else will pay me. And we'll, we'll, <laughs> I'm just going to. Put a website together and hope we'll, we'll make the mortgage payment. Or yeah. was she, was she like, like you know how my wife would be like, supportive but cautious? Or what? What was that conversation like? Or was she just like, you got to do it, Dan? Yeah, yeah. She, okay, so that, great question. Um, that that conversation was gradual, right? Um, you guys are both married, yeah. Yep. So you kind of understand how like a conversation will start as like a, just a suggestion, and then maybe six months later, it's like a real big conversation in yeah. the car, like you know, it's grown. Um, th that's where it was with us. And honestly, she was the driver behind it. Uh, I had been doing Olabi leadership for a while and getting a lot of speaking opportunities and coaching opportunities. And, you know, at New Point, um, it was great. People were amazing. Um, and my responsibilities were sort of dwindling because, you know, like we said, we had, we had gone from, you know, 10 people in a room to, um, you know, 500 on a Sunday and maybe 650 on a big day, you know, that kind of stuff. And so things were just running on, on their own for the most part. And there were days when I'd come home and I'm, I was kind of bored. And she's like, hey, you, you, can, you can do other things. And I'm like, no, 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 you know, because at that point I was pretty committed. Um, but through the conversations that we had and through prayer, we started to understand that there, there could be more out there. Um, and it was fine to leave the church into a new season and let them kind of go that way. At the same time, um, you talk about paycheck, you know, that's a leap, right? You got to mm -hmm. actually think about dollars and cents. You can't just do whatever you want to. So we're praying through that. Um, you know, Old Lobby Leadership is bringing in some income, but certainly not enough to support us. It's fun, and we're doing, doing um, more than we expected. But um, then I, I was approached by uh, an organization called Branches Worldwide. And um, it was a brand-new organization. They were looking for an executive director. They had a budget. They had a board. They had all the, everything they needed. They just needed someone to kind of fly the bird. And so um, 
you know, I was approached and they said, hey, we, we, what we want to do is we want to we identify and invest in 30 young leaders in 30 different countries and then work with them for 30 years. Because we believe one of the best ways to impact the local community spiritually, but also, you know, um, economically is to identify a young business leader in that community, come alongside them and help them grow then they'll make a huge impact in the community. So we would love for somebody to help us do that. By the way, you've got to find all the leaders. By the way, you've got to go to all the countries. You know, by the way, you've got to find all the donors and do all the things. But, you know, we will support you in it. We'll help you hire staff. We'll help you with the office. We'll do all that stuff. I love starting new things. I love biting off more than I can chew. And so that was an amazing opportunity. Mm-hmm. And so since then, um, that, that's, so that's what I do like 80% of the time. Um, Owolabi leadership is still 20% of the time, but we have two staff people on Owolabi leadership that really kind of gets the ball, keep the ball rolling. So it looks like I do more than I do, but in reality, I just kind of show up and they're like, all right, do this. And I'm like, okay. And then I spend most of my time on branches worldwide. So, so the book, how did that, I mean, it's an envious thing to say that you're an author. I think everybody, you know, is like, I could write a book, you know? Whether it's leadership or like a better Harry Potter, like or you know Hunger Games, like yeah. how did that? Has it been something like, man, I really want to write a book for a long time, or was it just like a natural progression as you've yeah. in the last decade? Um, it was it was a natural progression. So one year, um, I had heard someone do uh, maybe you've heard of this before, doing like a one year challenge where you have one big goal that you want to accomplish that year. Um, I would, I've been doing that for a couple of years and, uh, one year, my big goal was to read 52 books. So that's like a book a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm just like plowing through books. And when you do that, by the time you get to like the middle, you start to see a pattern in books and you see like the structure and all of a sudden it just makes sense. And then by the time I was at the end of the year, I was like, okay, I get what they're doing. And so that next year, um, really felt called to write a book on my own. And there's a couple different factors that came into it, but definitely God saying like, hey, you need to do this. And having to launch Branches Worldwide and also write a book that same year, I mean, everything in me was like, I don't want to do this. But again, you know, clearly felt God saying like, you should write a book. Mm-hmm. It's funny. It seems like so far in your story that what we see is uh, um, these opportunities coming while you're, you know, it isn't like I'm going to read 52 books in a year because I want to write a book and I need to figure this out. It's like, or, you know, you didn't say I'm going to go on a mission trip and figure out what I want to do with my life. It right. seems like you're, you know, a really cool through line of all this. It seems like you're just taking opportunities that God presents and at face value or challenges. And then God's showing up in those ways where it's in big ways, not small ways, not like, Hey man, you know, let's go for more salads. It's more like, Hey, let's change your career. (laughs) Let's, you know, let's move. Let's, you know, you know, you went from history teacher to pastor. uh, And we're going to say traditional pastor to leadership pastor. And now, you know, we'll call it what it sounds like to me with branches is, Kind of like a global, like it's still pastoring, it's still counseling, it's still leadership. It's got a business edge, of course, but it's, you know, there's a certain type of uh, business you're looking to invest in, I'm sure. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's just, uh, it's just interesting hearing this that you, it isn't like you sat down and said, okay, 10 years, I'm going to have my first book. You know, some people are like that. By the time I'm 40, I'm going to be an author. I'm going to be in 20 countries. And it's like, 
you've kind of backwards your way through all this stuff and show yeah. up and you're like, do you ever sit there and be like in, I don't know, even like Thailand? Do you ever sit there and go, uh, you know, I would, I, I should be teaching about the Louisiana Purchase <laughs> yeah. in yeah. a rural high school right. for a little bit of money and a lot of bit of stress. And I'm in this weird country right. and I don't speak the language. Like, right. Speak to the thankfulness, maybe the the mindset or the thankfulness that you have, like, because that's a pretty cool story. Dude, you're, you're 100% right. I mean, that 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 uh, perspective, things have happened so quickly, so fast, and they've been so big that it's it's very easy to give God credit because you're like, I couldn't have made this up. You don't, mm-hmm. you don't create these things. It happened to me when I was on a mountain in Nicaragua, and I'm looking over the edge into a volcano, live volcano. You can see, like, the bubbling, you know, lava inside. And I remember just pinching myself for a second thinking, like, what am I doing here? Like how in the world did I get here? You know, you have moments. Everybody has moments like that, and so that was a that was that was like a sort of a the thing you're talking about where you realize that God has sort of orchestrated things in a way that you couldn't have planned. I mean, you talk about lists. You have lists of things you want to do before you're 40, 30, whatever. I've got those lists, and God just like rips them up over and over and over again. I'm just stop making lists because yeah. none of them actually are right. Yeah, absolutely. So the book is called Authentic Leadership: How to Lead with Nothing to Hide, Nothing to Prove, and Nothing to Lose. So, in a nutshell, what is this about? What is this book about, and why should we be reading it? Yeah. So this book is for anyone who is in a leadership role that they're becoming accustomed to. Meaning, you um, you just take on new staff, you just got a promotion, um, you're just making a shift in leadership. And what what I'm learning, what I learned through the book, what I learned in my life was that I would talk to leaders over and over and over again who, when they walked into a new leadership opportunity. Everything felt normal. They kind of knew how to like do leadership. You know, they kind of knew the nuts and bolts. But what hit them out of nowhere was this huge sense of insecurity, feeling like they had to prove themselves or feel like they had to hide the fact that they didn't know everything. Or, you know, there's all kinds of different things that come up. And so what I was realizing was that um, authenticity is the antidote for insecurity. And insecurity, if you don't check it, will just wreck your leadership. Like you'll do things and say say things to people because you think it comes out of a good heart, but you're so stinking insecure and people can see it in you. You just can't see it in yourself. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, in the book, there's story after story of people who battled insecurity and how it's really turned out for them in a thousand different ways. But there's also some clear strategies on how to be more authentic, Mm -hmm. you know, without, you know, making people feel weird. How do you, how do you define authenticity? Yeah. Authenticity in my mind is bringing your best self in the service of other people. It's not just being you all the time and saying what you want to say anytime. That's not it. Authenticity is being the best version of yourself in the service of other people. And so there are moments when you want to say whatever's on your mind, you know, and you want to just be me. I just want to be authentic, but it's not helpful. You know, it might be true to you, but it's not helpful to someone else. And so you won't be that. So everything in this book is about um, helping people drive themselves to the point where they understand themselves, they can lead themselves. They understand other people around them. And finally, after they've done all that, they have the permission to lead other people. Um, I love that definition. As a pastor, you know this. Uh, I've had so many conversations about what you just said. I didn't say it as eloquently as you just did with that definition. It's a great definition. I'm going to go on record and let you know that I'm stealing that. Okay. Um, <laughs> so I'll give you I'll give you credit, but um, people will start to hear me use that definition because I love that. Um, but one of the things you learn is what you just said. It's to be appropriately authentic is in the service of other people. Mm -hmm. And I think for non-Christians, I think sometimes that seems like you're being two-faced or being fake. 
because someone will say, well, you know, I hung out with you at your home and you, you know, you slouched in your chair the whole time. But then I sat in your office or I sat in a meeting and you, and you sat up the whole time. Yeah, yeah you're not like, being yourself. Yeah, you're yeah. not being yourself. Why are you being fake? Why won't you just, you know? <laughs> right. So, and the authenticity is I'm being the my best self in service of other people. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think you can interview any leader and obviously in my case and in your case in some, in, in some circles is as a pastor, that's, that's, a, that's a hard thing to navigate mm-hmm. if you don't realize that, you know what, what, I need to be authentic in who God created me to be for a specific purpose of serving people. Boom, that's and so I good. Think, and I think, you know, I'm not trying to pull the conversation in this direction, but you and I specifically, mm-hmm. it's easier for us to see how we had to do that because I don't know about you, but you don't belong in Holmes County, okay? <laughs> I don't know what you uh, – you, you don't know – I don't blend in. Out of, you this is the, out of all the things that you know about me, <laughs> this isn't really where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and one of the things that kind of hit me to, to your point was about two years ago, two and a half, almost three years ago, I mentioned my dad's a pastor, and he wanted to hire me. Mm. He sent me this – Full proposal, paid, was willing to pay me exactly what I was asking wow. for. And it wasn't this like, you're my son, I'm going to make you feel guilty and pressure you into coming home. But it was very much a, hey, here's what we have going on in our church, and that's the church that I grew up in. Here's what, my, here's what the future of our church looks like. Here's where I, meaning him, see him, him, his self in the future, and here's what we need, and you're the guy. Oh, man. And Jeez. I prayed about it and cried about it and prayed about mm-hmm. it and cried about it and realized I couldn't take that job because I am where I'm supposed to be. And what you just said about that authenticity is like, Mm -hmm. all the boxes on my sheet and on my paper that I'm looking to check off, none of them are checked. Mm. And because this isn't, according to my list, this isn't where I'm. My wife doesn't look like I thought she would look. <laughs> she don't talk like from she from where I thought she'd be right, from. Right, right. Our meals don't look like what I thought they'd look like. Right. But but when you when I when I think about about you know me being an authentic person in this context is me is is the purpose. My purpose is to serve the people that I'm here to serve. So and funny. the level of relief and um, the fact that my anxiety went down mm-hmm. knowing that I was making the right decision because. I'm where I'm supposed to be. That when you said that, that's that that's what came to mind about about authenticity. That's powerful, Seth. I mean, I love that. And one of the things I wanted to actually bring up, and I, I trust me, I'm not going to give away your book or any too much of stuff. But one of the things that you it was a graph that I just absolutely love. I'm trying to find it, but it was just the four stages of leadership. I think is mm-hmm. authentic or authentic leadership. Excuse me. Um, and basically. What I felt so powerful is that, you know, we read a lot of books and we, we hear, you know, the five, four, three, two, one method or the, you know, the, you know, sit up, stand down, take a nap, five hour work week or whatever it is. And so there's all these types of books that you read and it's, it's very much a more of a recipe, you know, hey, two ounces of this, 10 ounces of that, shake it up, you're a leader. What I enjoyed so much for your book is that it's not so much solution-based. It's just it's setting up accountability for what's really going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. It isn't like, hey, you know what? This guy did this. This guy did this. Your stories aren't, this guy did this. This guy did this. Oh, well, you know, by the way, I'm talking about Steve Jobs. and he's, He was yeah. he ended up being a billionaire. Yeah, right. <laughs> it is a story. It's like the guy walked down the road. He liked this house and ended up having gold in the basement. Yeah. 
it's a lot of stuff. It's like, you know what? Leadership is tough, but sometimes it's thrust upon you. Sometimes you want it when you shouldn't have it yet. Mm. And how do you deal with those situations where, uh, especially when we talk about the stages, like you talk about understanding yourself as stage one, super important. Leading yourself stage two, which I think is the most skip step. Mm-hmm. Understanding others and then leading others. I think everybody wants to go to step four and be like leading others. Like I want the job. I that, want the president that, role. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I right. want to be like lunches absolutely. at noon. Right. I want to say we're going here for this and yep. and I want to make the decisions and that's leadership. And like you said earlier, and it's a point in the book, like people see your your piccadillies, they see your your inequities and in your life and your personality. And so as much as you want to maybe put the outside on for everybody else, dress well, drive the right car. They're over time going to see your struggles. And if you're not continually working on yourself and continually looking at opportunities for you to build yourself up in areas that you are deficient or find authenticity in your life, it's going to be a rough, it's going to be a rough road. And I, the last sentence of your, I think it was not your knowledge, but your, your preface, which I thought the greatest thing too, is said, uh, I have good news and bad news for you. The bad news is if you want to leave anything worthwhile, acute moments of insecurity are in your future. Not might be, not should be, it, it's happening. You will feel anxiety, uncertain, and, doubt, and be doubtful about your ability to lead. <sighs> Raise my hand on that. Hmm. Um, there's no other way around it. But here's the good news. Authenticity, authenticity is a potent anecdote for insecurity. You said that earlier. Hmm. Yeah. That's why I feel like I'm so excited about reading this book and continuing to finish it, hopefully, today. But the anecdotes in this book are a lot about the onus of leadership, not the success of leadership. It isn't about the result of leadership that we're talking about, the car, the, the success, the, the proud family, the prestige. It's about the the journey to leadership and you know for your journey right now and, and even Cedric's journey right now I see in both of you people that weren't necessarily hungry for specific leadership I mean hungry for I mean I, I know Cedric likes to be both desire to be good at what you do I mean Cedric spends a lot of time on the practice range I know your I know your your history with sports and athletics and and so when an opportunity arises, I see both of you guys take on that that challenge. But both of you, uh, I, I'm so excited and so happy to be friends with you all. Is I get to see the other side where it's like, I mean, me and Cedric sometimes text 10, 11, 12, 1 a.m. Yeah. About not like a family or a person, but just like, man, I'm, I'm just up against it. I'm just pulled thin. And either it's pray for me or it's, man – how should I handle the situation? And like, on accident, we're we're pushing each other's authentic to be more authentic with the, with our staffs and with our jobs. And so, you know, that's one of the great things about the book that I love. I just want to give you a prop for that. Mm. Is what differentiates this book from one, you know, the art of not giving a bleep, or you know, all of those books that you, if you're at Hudson News and you're in an airport, they're gonna put at the front thing. Mm-hmm. All that is about aggressive. To me, aggressive um, hiding of authenticity. Mm. It's about fake it till you make it, and by the time you make it, you'll figure it out. Mm. And this is about 
don't fake it. Well, I think one of the one of the mistakes we make too with the church is, and, and this isn't you know I'm not being too critical of this, but you know most pastors when they write, they're writing about either church specific things or very very specific spiritual growth things. And one of the gaps I think in in the church in that model is we for some reason make it seem as if being a high level top top like really quality leader is somehow separate from <laughs> our spiritual growth right and 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 we also make it seem as if and I know you've had this and I have it but congregants make it seem as if it's your responsibility Dan as a pastor and it's my responsibility Cedric as a pastor for us to be high level leaders mm. and have our spiritual growth grow mm. significantly different than my, than yours mm-hmm. or faster because you're the pastor mm-hmm. and so when you read when you read some of these books Sometimes you can tell that people default. They default to, well, I'm just going to you know, give a, a, a full breakdown of, of Matthew and write a book about it. Mm-hmm. Or I'm just going to default all the other way and say, you just need to be a really good leader and leave out the spiritual growth part of it. And I think when we look at, when we look, you know, we like to call them heroes of the faith. But when we look at leaders in the Bible, they had the same thing. Matt and I actually did a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about, and this was from a, from another source, um, about how transparency is the greatest measurement for courage, mm. and uh, an obviously appropriate amount of transparency. And we walked through that in, in that episode. And authenticity is a, it's a similar thing. So I just feel like, you know, um, again, I haven't gotten to the book. Matt and I have talked about it, and he's told me what it's, what's in it, and I'm excited to read it. Mm-hmm. But even just a little bit that I know, I like that I'm hearing that there seems to be pressure, appropriate pressure in the realm of, like, you're, you're a believer, you're a Christ follower, you're a Christian, and you're also a leader. Mm-hmm. And the two of those things go, all of those things are in one pot. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not separate. So, right, right, right. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. You know, there was a season when I was writing the book and I was working with the editor. And she said, you need to decide. You need to decide who you're writing this to. Either you decide to write it to Christians or you decide to write it to the secular community. Huh. You know? And I, I, I looked at her and I said, hey, I, I don't think I need to decide. Because I feel like I'm writing something that's helpful for the average business owner, business leader, um, whatever, but I'm also writing this to the average churchgoer, you know, somebody who believes in Jesus and needs to understand that leadership is important in today's society. And so, you know, I feel like as I was looking at the book and putting it together, you know, if I just hold held those two things in tension, you know, it would sort of come out in yeah. an authentic way, and hopefully it did. But yeah, yeah you know, and of course, you know, the greatest authentic leader of all time was Jesus. Right. And so, if you are a Christian and you read this book, you're going to have that those glasses on that lens that you're going to read things through. And, and it is in a situation where, I mean, you have, I mean, you, you share stories from, you know, C.S. Lewis and, and you talk about um, a lot of different things. You even had a passage on, on C.S. that you quoted from C.S. Lewis and I'm not a nerd, so I didn't, I didn't get it, but um <laughs> There's something about it was like a lion or there's a door or something. I forget what yeah, lion, it was a lion witch in the water. Something, something, what was it? Was there like a raccoon? Or a, yeah, come on, like in a, in a something. So, but uh, um, you know, our faith and our walk is, and it should be inextricably linked to our business, our our family, our yes. our walk, yes. and so. 
like you said, why do I have to make the choice? Because if if this is the word, if these are the words that are coming out, obviously, God is inspiring me to do this. But I don't have to unless it needs it. Unless, like Cedric said, we're we're doing it. Exegesis of Matthew five. Right. Yeah. We don't need to just throw it in there. Be like, all right, Christians, I got your. Let's throw some proverbs in so you feel good. You, you know, if it, if it's applicable, I know that you have a couple of verses in here, but it is in a situation where we're always trying to harken back to that because real life is is faith working every day. Yeah. Yep. So one of the things that I have in all of my teaching settings, so I teach an adult Sunday school class and I also teach a young adult class, and I tell them that as your pastor and as your leader, uh, my expectation, and just so you know, my model is 70-30, meaning 70% of what I do in front of you, meaning in a teaching format, I'm going to bring, I'm bringing 70%. The other 30% is on you. Mm. And I and I let them know, look, if you're not willing to, and I, and I mean this in a loving, graceful way, if you're not willing to at least bring 30%, this class is going to be frustrating mm. to you. If you're walking into the setting expecting me to do all of it for you mm. and not by the end of this series, by the end of this six-month period, by the end of this year, wherever, wherever you are currently leading, wherever you are currently in your personal walk, wh- whatever stage that God has you in, whatever position you have, whether that's husband, father, mother, wife, single person with job, doesn't matter what it is, where you, whatever, whatever the size of your leadership is in that area, by bringing, set, by bringing the 30% in the setting and committing to it, you will you'll get to the next you'll, you'll get to the next step yeah. and i said i will not be a good leader if i'm bringing 100 percent. Mm. i will bring i'm gonna bring it as far as like what my what i'm doing and doing it well but i want you to get to a place where you're going in a counseling setting one of the first things i tell some people walk into my office my goal is for you to not have to come see me mm. pretty soon mm. and never have to come see me ever again that's good unless that's it's good. just for a hey Let's check in. It's Maybe been a while. Yeah, cool. exactly. So, so that's that. That's that's the responsibility that I feel like I have as a leader. Yeah, I love that because what you're saying is you you do people a detriment if you do their work for them, right? Because they have to do their own heavy lifting. Like you have to have your own babies to actually have an idea that you like love and hold, and you're like, gosh, this is a huge idea. You actually have to do the hard work of like going through the labor and the birth pains to actually like produce that idea. And so faith is the same way. I love that. I mean, you can't expect other people to like do the work for you. You have to have your own babies. You got to yeah. do it on your own. Yeah. I love that. I have a couple like book questions, um, and these could be rapid. You know, just kind of. Give it to however. Me. So, how hard is it to actually write a book? It's tough. <laughs> it, it, it's like it is like running a marathon. Meaning, like when you right before you start, you think okay, this is going to be long and hard. And it is long and hard. And you have to discipline yourself to do it like every day. And there, in the course of the actual like writing of the book, there were, I don't know, 15 times where I was like, this sucks. I would rather not do this. I was on a plane to Thailand and I was writing the book and the guy I was driving with or the guy I was flying with, he was sleeping. He slept the whole entire time. <laughs> I, got, I got to Thailand and I was tired. I had, you know, X number of pages written and he was refreshed and like, hey guys, let's go look around. And I'm like, I just want to go to bed. So there's moments like that. Um, if you get if you get the hang of it, like some people have, uh, it goes much faster. It's tough though. Um, what's the hardest thing about writing a book? Picking the idea. If you can pick a big enough idea that's interesting that solves a legitimate problem that other people have, not one that you just think is fun and is interesting, but you find a space that you haven't read a lot about, 
and you haven't heard talked about, but you could talk about it for probably 30 or 40 minutes just straight and talk people's ear off, that's a good idea, especially if it if solves people's problem. I think a lot of it is like with pastors, like how many how many sermons you have 30% written? How many book ideas do you have 10% like that either end up just trailing off after the main conceit that you can't really branch it out or, you know, or push it out. Even like set up, we've done podcasts or you've done podcasts where there's been like an, either an anecdote or just a, like almost like a sermonette where it's like seven minutes. It's like, it feels inorganic to add to it. So that little piece on its own is really nice to, and we've been able to share those. But like, I always, I always think about that with writers, like how many, you know, maybe a guy wrote, wrote four books, but he probably started 20. Yeah. What are the other 15 that are like 30 pages in and he went, or she went, I ran out. This is it. Okay, well. <laughs> yeah. What's the most fun thing about writing a book? The most fun thing about it is I had two parts that were most fun. Um, the one was picking the cover. I really enjoyed that. I think I put a post up on Facebook and had some people help me with that. And that was really exciting to see. The second thing is, this happened the other day, is watching people actually read it randomly. Like when you're at a coffee shop and you're just walking in and someone in the corner is reading your book, you're like, oh, it's like listening to your song on the radio. <laughs> you're like, I can't believe this is happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really cool. So, um, Are you considering an audiobook because you have a good you have a good voice? I am. I, I'm actually thinking about having you read it because you have an amazing voice. I, will, I will take on that challenge. <laughs> I, I'm so I am a I'm a I'm a reading snob. Not as much as I used to be. And I. If you said to me, oh, yeah, I read 52 books. Oh, great. And 20 of them were audiobooks. I'd be like, you didn't read 52 books, uh, right? I used to be I used to be that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I greatly appreciate audiobooks mm-hmm. when I run and when, you know, I'm commuting. And so I've, I've learned to humble myself mm-hmm. and not be so uh, snobbish about <laughs> how I get the books in. Yeah. So I really appreciate them. And one of the things that I love is when an author um, either – I've seen it done well both ways. They either read it themselves or they have someone, as you can tell, has like they've caught the vision for their book and they read it as if it was their own. Mm. And it's so captivating. Mm. So I'm just curious like if you if you if you thought about that. That's coming soon. Yeah. Um that's awesome. Um how how long did it actually take to write the book? Yeah, from beginning to end, it probably took uh fourteen months. And that's just the writing process. That's not the all the production things. Yeah, once it got to the writing process itself, probably took. Ooh, good question. The writing, editing, um, the writing itself probably took um, eight months, and then the editing process probably took another four months, and then the production part, the actual like putting it together, that probably took six weeks. Okay. Yeah. Cool. It's all longer than I expected. Yeah. Every step was like, "Are you kidding me? Are we still here?" Huh. You know. You mentioned seeing someone read it. Uh, what's the reception been like? What have you heard? It's been it's been positive. Um, it's a funny thing happens. So from your perspective, from my perspective, you know, you're always the same person in every season of your life, and so nothing changes as far as the way you view yourself, um, the way God views you. But when you write a book, suddenly people look at you funny, and they look at you differently, and that's what's happening. And so um, it's just it, it it the reception has been positive in regards to the content of the book. But a lot of people who've never read the book. Just the fact that I wrote a book now, like, think, think, think differently about the words that I'm saying. Is that 
is that a positive reaction or a negative reaction or a little bit of both? It's been positive in that it's given me an opportunity to speak to people in a way that I hadn't been able to talk to them. They give my words credibility where before I said, hey, Jesus loves you. And then they're like, whatever. And I'm like, nah, I wrote a book. And I'm like, Jesus loves you. Like, oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Maybe that means something. So you know? this may be a hard thing for you to, to think of in the moment. But what's the correlation between... Dan, young pastor who may have been given some grunt work, hey, go teach us on this school class, move these drums, set these chairs up, to, hey, by the way, you're preaching on this Sunday for the first time, you know, so you're like, oh, that's that's the young pastor at our church, his name's Dan, to the first one to three times you preached, and then you went from being young pastor Dan to, oh, that's that's our, that's one of our pastors, yeah. because, and I experienced that, like, yeah. so it's similar to what you're saying, like, until you have this platform. We talked about this in another podcast. Cody, Cody mentioned it. He said, he's, he's a worship pastor. He's like, oh, I sing every week. But he's like, the first time I preached, I became pastor to some, to some, to some people. So, yeah. so you mentioned about like, once you write a book, you, people view you differently. Or, yeah. Is there, is there, was it a similar transition? Like going from, you know, maybe behind the scenes to on the platform, literally and figuratively in reference to pastoring and writing a book versus not writing a book? Yes. Yeah, absolutely similar. Um, similar feelings, um, similar. You start to notice people, you know, listening when you talk mm -hmm. more. So that's probably the first indication. <clears throat> also, the same feelings of insecurity. You know, when people start to take your advice and actually follow it, you almost want to back away from the leadership oh mantle. Like, God, no, 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 no. Well, yeah, I'm just, a, I'm just a, you know, don't take my... Well, God's given you a platform, and so you better be sure about what you're saying and then expect people to actually live it out. So you better do your homework with God before you step in front of the mic. And so for this, you know, once I wrote it, I thought, okay, like people are going to read this. Can I stand behind everything? Mm -hmm. And there were moments where I was like, ah, did I say that the right way? Did that story, you know? But at some point, you got to say, God, you're in this, and you've given me this for a reason. I'm just going to walk into this with all courage and all confidence, trusting that you'll give me the right words to say Man, in the right moment. That is so mm. well said. I I mm. used to, I used to hate the accountability pressure of being a pastor. That's the word. I hate it. That's I word. used to hate it. I, because like, people actually believe what you say. They actually trust you. They actually, they actually listen. You know, yeah. and there are times where you're like, okay, no one's listening to me. Like, you know, I'm just up here bebopping and scatting all over the place and no one's really paying attention. And then three weeks go by, <laughs> you know, six weeks go by, and then someone says, says something, something to you. Yeah. They said, hey, you – I mean, like, and honestly, the most shocking thing to me isn't three or six weeks. It's like three years. Mm. You know, so it's three years go by and someone says, hey, uh, man, you preached a sermon three years ago and it changed my life. I think I still look at those notes. I, I bought a new Bible and I said, I can't throw this old Bible away. Mm. I got past the notes in it. And you're just like, wait a second, you were listening to what I had to say? You know, so that that accountability. And we, I, again, we talked. I talked to, about this with another pastor. There was a moment of being a young pastor where I was afraid to leave my home. Like, I didn't want to go anywhere. I was like, because someone's going to see me and then they're going to want to ask me a question and they're going to be like, I heard you speak. I heard you say this. But now, as I'm matured in my faith and matured as a person and as a man and as a and as a leader, I actually I I've learned the amount of growth that I've gone through because of that accountability of being a leader and people actually believing what you say. I now welcome it. I, I yeah. appreciate it now. And like like you just said, like they're listening to you and you're thinking, did I say that the right way? Am I and and I, and I like it because what I heard you say, you didn't say it this way, but I heard what I heard you say. Is, Am I being the authentic leader that I need to be in service of these people right. 
even if it's not in the way I would label authenticity. Exactly. authenticity. So exactly. I, I, I like that. Yeah. yeah. And I, I know we're probably pressed for time. I don't want to go too far. I don't know how the schedule is. But, uh, um, <clears throat> you know, for me, and maybe we'll end up doing like a part two because I'd love to, you know, you both of your stories and especially for you, Dan, the extraordinary circumstances that got you to here not just with you, but with your parents and where they're from and what they had to battle through to get you to a place. And why didn't they move to Akron? Like, why why didn't they move to a place where a lot more guys mm. that look like Dan mm. that you could feel a little bit better? I used like, to ask myself that You're like, well, we're 20 minutes away, Mom. <laughs> like, we could have been like, a mask. You missed it. Well, so close, God. you know? <laughs> Close, but not far enough. Why does uh, why does my backyard smell like cow, cow manure <laughs> right, and everything? But right. uh, I'd love to drill into that and like especially with Cedric, like you know, both your stories being really first generation, born. Well, Cedric was born in the Bahamas, but first generation Americans and going through that whole process. Man, I got so many questions about dating. I got questions about mm. like you know being you know a Nigerian family and you bring in erica home mm. was that how was that mm. culturally mm. how was it when dan showed up at erica's house culturally i me and cedric have had yeah we've had many conversations about conversations that. about how that stuff goes and like yeah you know the human side of things but you know i know we can't got a ton to dig into yeah. that today but you know i'm you know as a as a as a person that's known you for 25 years i'm proud of you uh i'm happy that i got to know you I'm glad that you learned how to drop step, <laughs> pump fake. Me too, right? <laughs> I'm glad that that was the the first thing that we connected with, and and 25 years later we're sitting in this room with purple carpet talking about the book you read or you you wrote. And uh, I don't think in a million years, when we were in fifth grade getting thrown out of class, right. we'd ever think that we'd be sitting here and having families like this and having a relationship like this. And so, hmm. man, feel grateful. Feel grateful for, of course, Cedric, because we do this stuff. But, you know, everybody, you know, authentic leadership. Dan Owolabi. I'm going to spell it O-W-O-L-A-B-I. It's not a wallaby like my dad says. It's Owolabi. Yeah. Where, where, um, can, where can people get the book? You can get it on Amazon right now. Okay. It's the easiest. Go get it. It's, a, it's an easy read. I'm going to do this like my dad says. It's like a two and a half to three poop read on the toilet, I would say. If we're gonna if we're gonna do that, it's probably about two sessions if your kids aren't running around. But <laughs> it's it's a it's chock full with a lot of information. I mean there's even notes that I even took that we didn't get to today. But when you talk about authentic leadership, this book is authentic leadership because it is it's the nitty gritty. It's not the it's not about the finish line. It's about the race and and man I, I, I just I, I so enjoy this stuff. Even if you weren't my friend, I'd I'd be excited about this book. So thanks, yeah. Dan. Yeah, thanks. Anything yeah, else, thanks man? for coming. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Obviously, there's about four hours worth of conversation yeah. that's uh, left to be had. So we will we will definitely um, set some time to do that. Uh, I I've not known Dan as long as Matt, but I I also appreciate. Uh, the fact that you wrote it, that you took that faith step to do what it is that you're doing, and I'm I'm looking forward to to uh, developing a relationship with you and just and and seeing where this goes and um, and doing my part to to get people to 
to see why it's important to not just read your book, but listen to what it is you're saying and do what it is that you are suggesting that that we do. So thanks again for the time. Um, this is the How Did I Get Here podcast. And until next time.